All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Well, first of all, uh, I do have to apologize for not putting an episode out last week, but as I said on Twitter, I had some business issues that simply left me with basically zero free time all last couple weeks. Hopefully, however, today's excellent episode will more than make up for that. I've been thinking a lot recently about the evolution in thinking that so many internet innovations have engendered. Um, We've spoken extensively about how nervous people were at first about using credit cards online. And in our episodes about eBay, we talked about how people slowly learned to trust and then even do business with complete strangers online. And even though From the beginning of the web, there were a certain segment of people who were more than happy to live and share their lives out in the open, online. How exactly did we get from those early days where most people wouldn't even have considered putting their personal information of any kind online to the point where now, today, even my mother shares every thought, every photo, and every detail of her life online without thinking twice. Well, one way that we got from there to here is thanks to pioneering companies like WebShots, which was the very first company to organize and allow public photo sharing online. And so today, we're going to talk with Narendra Rocherol, who was one of the founders of WebShots. We talk a lot in this episode about the evolution of the digital sharing habit, how it's evolved, and we also have what I think is maybe the most detailed and informative founder stories that we've yet heard. You'll hear how WebShots was founded, how it pivoted a couple times, found success, had a successful exit, and then had to be rescued from the brink of failure, with bankruptcy actually, uh, by the founders themselves when they buy back the company and then relaunch it and find success all over again. This is absolutely vital listening for aspiring entrepreneurs out there. So, as I always say, 
and I know that you always do, please enjoy this episode, a conversation with Narendra Rocherol. Narendra Rocherol, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, as you know, we like to start off with a little bit of background. So, uh, Narendra, where did you actually grow up? Oh, boy. Okay, okay. we're going to dig way back. Um, I grew up in Stamford with an M. Mm-hmm. You're out in California. You have to qualify that. Um, Connecticut, which is about 45 minutes from New York City. And um, I saw from your um, from your LinkedIn, as it were, that you actually you went to school for for history. So um, and you got a you got a BA in history and, and an MA in Latin American history. Is that right? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, that is absolutely correct. I had no idea what I wanted to do in college or even after college, and um, I kind of fell into history. Oddly enough, the only thing I didn't ever study in school was anything to do with computers or computer science or that sort of thing. So um, I kind of became, I guess, a little bit of a child of the web uh, and just figured a lot of things out as I, as I went along. But um, so well, briefly, after, after, after undergrad, I moved out to, uh, from the East Coast to San Diego. And the only thing at that point, this was 1991, that I knew, the only thing I knew for a fact is I didn't want a conventional job. And I didn't know what, I, I'm not sure. At, at, right now, I guess that means you wanted to be an entrepreneur. There was no sort of like culture of that that I was aware of. Um, people were going into, you know, investment banking or, uh, I guess law school or medical school, but I, I just sort of like, I'm going to go someplace different. And, um, I moved out to San Diego and, uh, after a couple of years of, of not doing a whole lot, I decided I needed to go back to school. So I, I went up to Stanford to go get more of a history. Uh, right. History you, you get your, you get your master's at Stanford and so you're there in ninety three, ninety four. Is that maybe how how accidentally you ended up in tech? Because that's that's really right where it all starts to bang off. Uh, that is, that is, um, I'll qualify that with that. I, I did have, I think, you're, with lots of folks, even if they weren't studying it, they were exposed to it. So I was exposed to. We did have an Apple to, I want to say plus. Didn't have capital. It didn't have lowercase. So I can't I can't exactly uh, fit that computer, but I had a, a friend who was also like a, 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 I guess he must have been a database architect, but he exposed me to to Unix um, stuff when I was in high school. So I actually wrote a, a term paper in high school in VI, which I don't think at the time in the eighties there weren't a whole lot of kids who had done that who had sort of like figured out that sort of panel line stuff. But that kind of then went dormant for. For many years, and and so I was, I was, you know, out in San Diego and then up in Palo Alto, and sure enough, yeah, uh, that ninety three, ninety four year was. So someone had written a big article recently about ninety four, the undergrad. Um, the Stanford was a very kind of connected campus at that time, and so I had just gotten my first email, and um, you know, was sort of discovering a lot of command line stuff and Gopher and. Uh, that that sort of first text web browser links was there, and I was sort of just fascinated with with all this information that seemed to be showing up. And then, sure enough, one day I was in the library; should have been reading some book on Mexico, um, 
uh, for a class I was taking, and I discovered Mosaic and was kind of smitten, I think, at that moment. And, um, and you know, kind of got into, I, I'm sure you can recall, there was a period back then when the very first, like I think it was uh, GNN, the very first, and, and I guess Yahoo was starting, were starting to list right. websites. And you had a sense that this was a finite universe. And it was like, if I had enough time, I, I'm just going to visit all, like all of them, you know, like see, see what's out there and, and what people are, are um, doing. Now, it was very slow, so it was sort of like a little bit limiting um, factor. But I think from that period on, I was just sort of like became mesmerized with it. And then I think Netscape, I guess Netscape showed up. Uh, uh, Tail end of 94. 94. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can remember those showing up. I was still loitering on campus, even though I had gotten my master's degree that that uh, summer in '94, and the World Cup came to town. It was kind of a very festive, festive time. Now, back then, it was a it was a very strange thing because in order to get on the internet, you were either on a campus um, or you had to figure out how to dial up. But the only way you could figure out how to dial up was by having access to the internet. So it was sort of like this chicken or the egg thing um, and then you have to download all this obscure software um, you know to create a TCP IP stack and actually connect and get that wonderful modem sound that you have at the beginning of the show and, and uh, I, I swear I still listen to that and I actually get this visceral reaction because there was sort of like this this feeling of excitement that every time you connected you didn't know what what, what you were going to kind of discover next um, but uh so this this story has it does have an have an end. So with this um, uh, this great pedigree in history, uh, I promptly applied to a teaching position at a nearby middle school for history, and I think in Los Altos. And um, I was turned down, hmm. and so I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do next. But I was kind of fascinated with these web pages and. I tried to call someone because I was trying to help my parents who had a, a, a kind of a, a design, a landscape design firm in Connecticut. And I was like, I'm going to put their business online, you know, very forward thinking for 94. And um, I called up some agency, I guess, in San Francisco. I can't remember. Couldn't remember who it was. But they're like, yeah, we have like a four-month backlog on designing websites. And I was like, huh, well, maybe I'll try to do this myself. And then, and then that began a very long um, adventure. So you basically um, taught yourself HTML. I mean, this is this is before CSS, so you we wouldn't need to teach yourself that. So you, you basically start to to just teach it yourself. Yeah, I mean, if you if you kind of go back ninety uh, four, the the web was actually quite simple. There was, uh, you know, you could align things to the left or centered. <laughs> Right, so and, a and different font sizes. Tables, and, tables and were a big innovation. <laughs> right, I mean, I can remember, like even then, there was no such thing as like a background image. But background was the color that Mosaic or Netscape had. It's a default. You actually have to go into a browser setting to change the actual background color of a page. But for most people, the web was gray um, with text overlaid and then people started to just figure stuff out and then improve it I can remember to this day the first time I saw an animated GIF which was uh, oddly enough on the 7up website mm. which is sort of like imagine a gray background with some random stuff about 7up and these little 7up bottles that were they were kind of like animating in circles 
Um, and I was like, wow, how, well, how is that? Like, how does that work? Um, so it was like that. It was like every day you would wake up and, 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 you know, get this sense that people were figuring out or just poking and pushing and pulling and trying to figure out what, what you can do with this new, um, kind of medium. So how do you, um, how do you join this, this revolution in earnest? Um, you know, it's much slower and more painful. Like, I, I, you know, just listening to your podcast, you'd start hearing about the things that were happening in, in Palo Alto and Silicon Valley at the time. I actually chose to move back to San Diego, um, in the beginning of 95 and kind of started my own, I guess, consulting firm, um, Myself and my my uh, brother was out there too, helping out a little bit. And it was kind of, I had big plans, I had big visions. Uh, one of the first projects we stumbled upon. And, and the other thing you have to remember is, at this time, the news about the internet and the web was very. Uh, I used to collect, I used to clip articles about the internet because I'd frequently try to explain it to people. If I had a binder of things that would appear in newspapers, and I could clip out a little thing, be like, "This is this new thing. It's coming to me big." And I can remember reading something about a, um, a hotel in Santa Cruz that had somehow installed a camera and it was taking pictures of the ocean and it was getting, uh, you know, back then everyone was about hits. Um, it wasn't a lot of specific quant- quantification going on. I was like, that's incredible. What do I love doing? Like, we love going um, at the point where we're getting into snowboarding. Like, maybe we can do this at ski resorts. And so... Um, that was one idea that was hatching. Uh, another idea, because I was in San Diego, was like, why can't? Why isn't every business online? Like, we're gonna we're, we're gonna create uh, a telephone book of, of businesses. And so I registered the domain Superpages. So I got a couple irons in the fire. Now it turned out um, I was could not at all qualified to build a an index of businesses um, for two reasons. I didn't know anything about databases. I didn't know anything about coding. I could do HTML just fine. Um, but we kind of got a, a, a sort of like sales force together to walk around places like La Jolla and San Diego and try to convince people that they should list their business with us. And um, that was very tough going. My first customer uh, paid me with a set of men's dress shoes. Uh, other folks we just had a hard time even trying to convince them to pay five bucks a month to have like what kind of would have been a proto web page. Very, very, very painful. Um, and so eventually abandoned that. Uh, and I was the holder of this great domain, superpages.com. But back then, um, early on domains were, were, were sort of meted out by ICANN. And part of it was a social contract that you wouldn't register something that, um, you weren't going to develop so that, you know, sort of like on your honor, not to squat on things. A lot of people were not, or sort of like not paying attention to that. I think there was a big article in Wired about somebody who had registered maybe McDonald's or something like that. People were sort of getting fascinated with uh, what would eventually become this kind of commercialization. Uh, right. I think and, it was one uh, of the, I think it was one of the guys that suck had, had, had gone out and registered company domains to just to see what would actually happen. He wasn't going to actually extort yeah. them, but yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I was, uh, holding this domain, which I guess at the time super pages was something that was, uh, like a GTE thing. Like they actually had a yellow page at some place recently. And, um, 
I had registered it for for like $15 or something like that. Uh, and some guy from Canada came and called me. He's like, I'll give you $200 for that. I'm like, that's a profit done. So, <laughs> so um, I think he was eventually kind of leaned on and had to, had to give up the domain. Now, so that one didn't pan out, but the ski thing got kind of interesting. Um, and these are some sort of fun stories. In the fall, late summer, early fall of 95, um, we had this big vision of installing cameras at basically all the ski resorts that we thought we'd like to go to. Um, and uh, we also had this idea that we could do, every ski resort has a phone that you could call. Um, so we registered the domain snowcan.com, snowreport.com. And we figured we were going to put these audio recordings online. And so um, we needed a way to serve audio, sort of, sort of like poking around the internet. And I find this guy in Dallas, this new thing called AudioNet. And so I call up and it's like, this is Mark. And um, that's sort of like my first interaction with Mark Cuban. I, I don't know what, you know, this is at the very beginning of the, the, the starting this sort of like push to get, inter, uh, get radio on the internet and, mm-hmm. and all these streams and audio. And we actually became the first client of AudioNet. Um, and they were so not interested in, in building sort of like that type of business line that we were never even invoiced for two years. Um, but we had kind of this cool idea. And for a long time, we were on the front page of, of, of AudioNet with this service that had about 20 or 30 marquee ski resorts, um, which amounted to someone waking up really early, calling all these resort phones with like a cassette actually um, recording the audio kind of, I forget how we did it with the telephone to get the actual audio into there and then transcribing, making it digital, FTPing it up, so they were then transcoding it into something playable on real audio. But this, by this magic and a little bit of dedication, we had this, we had this really this fantastic um, service that uh, did quite well. The cam side proved to be way harder um, just because like if you think back at the at 95, there's just not a lot of not a lot of like reliable solutions to to have a remote camera taking pictures. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, the only the only successful one we implemented was at a ski resort called called Snowbird in Utah, and this actually involved setting up in a closet, um, looking out at the mountain, a an actual video camera. You know, like people would record for, uh, I guess it must have been high, some sort of um, tape at that point. And then it's sort of like you'd take the RCA cable and it would go into this parallel port device called a Snappy TV. And that would plug into this laptop into like Windows 3.1, maybe. Um, and this thing would take pictures every minute and then it would. Uh, well, it was probably less cycled than that because it would have to dial up into Salt Lake from Snowbird to, to upload this photo to the website. And um, it's a bunch of hacks because, like, Windows wasn't very stable, so there was something in there that would periodically restart Windows and then have a whole startup script. And this whole, like, like crazy concoction actually worked for an entire season. Because the, the, and I only know this because I was living in San Diego, so if it had broken, I would have had to get on a plane 
and fly to Utah to go sort of kick it. And so by some miracle, it stayed up and lasted a season. And the only reason it didn't work the second season was at some point during the summer, um, and Stubbard was paying a phenomenal, what, what we thought was a good profit, something nominal. Um, it had dialed up to Salt Lake and not disconnected. And at that time, that was not a, you know, tel- tel- telephone billing was very strange. I mean, still is today to some degree. But sometimes, like, something that seemed close, like 20 miles away, could actually incur some big charges. And it would, be, would be long distance. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they got like a twelve hundred dollar phone bill for this <laughs> rogue modem, uh, and that was that was sort of like we the next season that didn't it didn't work out. But for a whole season it did work out, and we kind of got our name out there, and we scored what you know for a bunch of twenty somethings who were into that um, into skiing and snowboarding, we scored up. Uh, a sponsorship from Burton that was entirely in gear. That's like fifteen, I think, it's like fifteen thousand dollars worth of gear, thanks to my brother's um, savvy negotiating. And so we, I can remember being in San Diego, and, and like every day, some new amazing piece of equipment would arrive uh, at our place. And so uh, it was, you know, it was an early. Uh, it was an early success, I'd say, an early win. And, and just um, so, just to be clear, that was snowreport.com was, was the main yeah. site that that came. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it lasted for a long time. It actually, that snowreport.com, um, we eventually sort of did the tech, the conventional tech stuff. And, um, it, you know, it was a fine little thing on the internet. It was not a, um, was not on the IPO track. <laughs> but, right, right. But, uh, it, it it afforded me an introduction to uh, the guys who became my uh, business partners in web shops. And uh, uh, so that was kind of part of the story, I guess. Well, okay. Then, then let's, let's make that connection. So um, how do, how do you get from there to what would become web shots? Well, conveniently enough, um, there's a, a guy who graduated from UC San Diego named Andy Lockman, who uh, was also in outdoor sports, uh, uh, rock climbing and you know, sort of like whitewater kayaking and skiing. And he was, um, knew much more about coding than I did, uh, and had spent a bunch of time in the kind of Windows NFC world. And at, you know, just to put some context around it, you know, in, in let's say 95, 96, Windows is, there's no, Windows is the player, right? Like that everyone's computer and now laptops are, are, are windows and um, there is kind of an environment around windows that you, I, you talked to Justin a while ago is a sort of like shareware freeware things that sort of like existed uh, in the periphery of software and Andy set out to build what was then a screensaver and we needed screensavers then because if you walked away from a CRT monitor for um, too long it would it can actually uh, burn in whatever was on your screen if it wasn't changing. And so screensaver after some idle point would start uh, doing something lots of times sort of like vector art or just things that sort of like dance around the screen or like uh, a right, marquee, but they were, you know, windows would come with. They were, they were also really, really popular because, yeah, almost almost everybody used them and then it sort of allowed you to personalize your machine in a way that windows, you know, really wouldn't, you know, because you could, you could put all sorts of things on it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like one of the, the sort of like 
biggest opening for us getting started as a company uh, was the fact that Microsoft shipped with a, like a boring dark gray background. Um, so there's sort of like this twin world of personalization around like what was your computer doing while it was idle, and then what were you looking at on your desktop? And um, you know, so Andy wrote this screensaver software that was it was a it was you know had to be a meg. 1.3 meg sort of fit on a floppy uh, and or, and to be sold at retail. And so it's like, how do we get into REI and this sort of stuff? And so he was sort of like trying that route and it just didn't work. Like that, like trying to get distribution of a software title. Lots of people did this. I mean, there were, you know, the top USAs and there were stores you used to go to and like look at software on the shelf and kind of pull down and buy it. Um, but that first sort of incarnation of uh, websites, which I think at the time was, uh, it had a slightly different name. Aralis? Didn't quite, yeah, Aralis, yeah. Right. It didn't quite take as a business. Now, Andy was also consulting for his dad, um, who uh, was doing sort of laser engraving um, software and laser cutting software. So it was, he, was, he had a couple different gigs. But he had he had this idea that 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 we could somehow start sharing cool images online because again you got to take yourself back even ninety five ninety six ninety seven you're not there are no cameras really there's no no very few no digital cameras online. I should say yeah and there 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 is there are images in certain news groups that are certainly vibrant um, right. and and as we know the old adult seems to lead. Uh, a lot of behavior, but they were, you know, like they required their own sort of like software for encoding and decoding. But really for, for personal stuff, you, you'd have to, um, you'd have to own a flatbed scanner, uh, and scan it and then get it, get it up there. And so his, his sort of like idea or insight was that maybe, you know, the software once it's running, if we let you download it from the internet, it could, um, allow you to start collecting images. And, um, you know, that was a big insight. So I had become friends with him because I tried to convince him to sell his uh, early version of his screensaver on some of the projects that um, I was working on with Snow Report. Um, and we went through a lot of iterations. Do you remember a company called BackWeb? Mm, no, I'm not sure. It's an Israeli company, interesting company. There was this sort of, like, everyone talks about PointCast. Um, mm and kind of that push model. Push technology, Backweb, yeah. yeah. Backweb created an entire infrastructure around uh, uh, around push and, and sort of like a whole scripting language. And, and it was a, a very, very exceptionally well-done thing. It sort of peaked in 96, and they had a big launch party at... Uh, there was a conference once upon a time called Internet World um, that was a very big conference. And, uh, you know, Microsoft and all, all these big companies that had these huge booths and we'd kind of go see what was going on in, in the internet in 96, 97. Um, anyway, we, this sort of little ski report thing we were doing was kind of clever enough that we got in uh, and I had discovered this backflip thing because I wanted to start pushing these, these reports and um, we were part of this launch related to that. And, and uh, I had somehow found some sort of banner that Annie was running and I called him up on the phone and like, like, do you want to advertise with us? And it, like the whole deal took off, took off 34 seconds and we kind of hit it off. And eventually, um, 
he, you know, we're like, he was down actually in San Diego. This is part of what the story works. He was in Ocean Beach, San Diego, which is, was about five or six miles from me. And, um, he had already convinced uh, a sort of a third partner who was a co-founder and website, Nick Wilder, um, to be working on his laser software with him. And eventually he, he talked me into sort of ditching the, some of the stuff that I was working on and, uh, and coming down to to collaborate on this idea around photos and uh and so you know we're like okay what what you know like what does what does this mean uh and and in our world we were thinking much more on like desktop um initially like we had a uh, a screensaver builder we're kind of thinking along this screensaver model but once we got this idea that you could really distribute through the web um, it started to sort of all kind of click. And so then at that point, WebShots becomes uh, something focused around giving away content each day. Now, giving away content each day means we had to go out and license content from uh, image providers to agencies, people who had actually created this stuff. And um, Andy's sister, uh, Dana, was in charge of sort of like sourcing um, this material and coming up with with categories and, and, and then sort of like turning those into digital images and making sure they were the right size. It was actually a fairly involved um, process to, to get these things into like a form that then they can be kind of become this currency of, of photo sharing, but uh, people dug it. And so at a certain point in 98, uh, it took a while to sort of arrive at that. We started coming out with packs of, of images um, and different shareware models, right? Like you could, the software would work for seven days and then it would stop and, uh, you know, like different things. And, and people were willing to pay for it um, uh, because it was so novel and so needed. Like your, your desktop was boring and the idea that you could put something that you were kind of passionate about or, or into as your backdrop um, was just kind of hit, struck a, struck a chord. And, um, I would say at the towards the end of '98, we started to get this idea of like let's go less with the you know the packs are interesting. Let's start doing more of a, like an everyday experience. And um, we had this thing called the daily photo, and we started to send out two of those a day. And we had this desktop client that would remind you, that would notify you that you had a new you know there were new images available. And uh, from the time that launched, like every single day at that point was a new record on the website. Like every day, more people came than the day before. And uh, once that hit, we sort of like, we just, you know, we just started to grow and started to sort of like decide where, where was this going to, to take us. Uh, can I can I interrupt you for a second? Because um, yeah. just so that uh, I can understand the context. Um, first of all, did you ever actually launch the the screensaver downloadable on the web originally? The screensaver was downloadable. Yes, it was yes. all it was all kind of a, a desktop wallpaper and screensaver okay. integrated. So so then sort of like these twin couplings. Uh, describe for me if I'm a user in ninety six or ninety seven when this first launches. Um, I have to I have to download a client from you. Is that right? Yeah. And so then the client sits on my desktop, you know, as 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 an app, and it 
it, does it serve me in my browser daily pictures or does it, it does it pop up sort of like that push model where it would notify you you have new pictures every day that sort of thing initially it would just uh, it would just sit there and it would come with a pack of photos 10 whatever you wanted and then we would somehow message you at that point that you could go onto the website and you could either buy a new pack or you could uh, you know, there are different versions of the sort of business model, or you could just get a another free pack. Let's say you were into kayaking, you get the sort of kayaking set. Or if you wanted to browse individual, we would register. Uh, and again, Justin from Winnipeg was talking about this. You would register a, a mime type, and we had a mime type called the .wbz file, and this was basically a JPEG with a couple little bits of other information. And so when you would click on that in your browser, your browser knew that, oh, that's for WebShots, and it would hand it off to the WebShots program, and it would sort of, like, drop it into the thing. And then WebShots would sort of run, and you could customize it, right? Like, after a minute, your screen might go idle and show you photos, and you could pick one of 20 transitions, um, or you could uh, set your wallpaper to rotate every hour. Um, so the the actual software client on the desktop would kind of oversee some of the utility functions. And and the 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 photos as you said are all licensed. Who were you who were you licensing from at this point? Oh boy. Um I I mean I can't remember it's a lot of, there's been a lot of consolidation in stock image mm-hmm, mm-hmm. companies, but uh lots of different ones or we go to um kind of individual vendors that is sometimes or like uh, magazines. We were getting some from triathlete magazine for a while. Like it really depended on what the genre was. Um, and these were initially very heavily weighted towards outdoor stuff. Um, yeah. I, I think that's about as much as I recall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and for and, that stuff, but did it, yeah, go ahead. Well, so, um, the idea is is that um, these it's it's basically like I said a a a program that allows you to personalize the, the, your experience of your desktop and your revenue model is that it's a freemium sort of thing. Here's your you download the client, you get a certain number of, of photos, and then if you want more in this category, or that category, you can you can buy more from us. Is that right? Yeah, um, I would say yes. It, initially, the, the model was straight-up shareware, which was like software worked or didn't work, or you unlocked some additional features. Um, freemium uh, came a little bit later on down the road when it actually became more of a, like a SaaS, one of the sort of like earliest businesses. Um, but yeah, it was sort of like a lot of it was like, okay, it worked for seven days and then it didn't, like that sort of thing. Right, and so um, then you should pay up if you want to keep using it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's sort of this inflection point in 98 was like this idea that, you know what, now we're going to doing this every day and the client's going to tell you that there's new stuff every day. Cause like, you know, there's one of those big, I don't, we had read it in some magazine, right? Like, um, uh, not an online one cause there wasn't a lot of that, but content is king. Like back then you would get like Yahoo internet life or, you know, wired or something like that. And if you didn't live in the Bay, like trying to, suss out exactly what was happening. Um, uh, sometimes it was a bit of a challenge. It was very intermittent. Like you didn't, it wasn't, it, there wasn't this sort of like incredible information flow that there is now. Um, 
so yeah, we were like, well, what if we, you know, if we put up more content, then, then you know, people are going to come back, and and uh, well, that turned out to be actually dead on. Um, and so it's it started, it started this very fast run up in 1999, um, uh, where like the the site was growing, and we basically started to morph ourselves into kind of a portal, right? Because if you're giving away a new image every day. Um, that's where people are starting out and our software would set your homepage. And so we sort of like hack together a version of my Yahoo. We'd start getting like a, a thought of the day, uh, you know, some news headlines, like uh, a lot of this stuff became a little bit, um, there was a, a more of an available, an initial availability of some of these services, uh, at, you know, cheaper rates. It becomes cookie than, cutter. Than you can, you can grab the things you need off the shelf and plug them in. Uh, a little bit, you know, not as great as things are today, but yeah, there's a, there's a degree to like, okay, we'll get the horses go. You know, like you find an agency and like, okay, you just pull down some sort of feed of horoscopes and then we'd reformat them and, and, um, you know, put people would start, um, people start, start showing up. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I want to I want to get to the webshots community which which launches in in 99 but before we do that let me just for the context uh underline again when the web starts in the early 90s um and you know people first get their emails and things and they're they're trading pictures even if it's a picture of your your grandkids or whatever it's not coming from your phone it's not coming from even a digital camera it's it's a film camera <laughs> and a film print that, that you then have to scan before you can email it to somebody or put it on the web and so that's what you that's why you're not launching with user generated content and the first commercial or at least you know affordable digital cameras don't really come onto the scene till the late 90s right so yeah i mean let me, I'll, i can even give you a good anecdote like, okay we had two clients their digital images in our software because there was just wasn't you know there weren't any there really were Webshops was kind of it for like image-based screensavers, that sort of stuff. One was a, like these are inbound to like a tiny office in Ocean Beach, San Diego, which I don't think has ever had any internet company ever, and probably never will. Um, as part of a surf town and you know burrito shops and coffee shops and stuff like that. But we had inbound from Augusta, like for the Masters, so we were sort of like under all sorts of agreements to like put together the official masters. But the real amazing was we got inbound from Bill Gates's one of his in-law, his in-law, I can't remember for, in order to build a screensaver of, uh, and 
they'll have to forgive me if I'm wrong on the gender, but I believe it was his first daughter mm-hmm. for a Christmas gift. So here we were building like a screensaver for like the, you know, the guy who created Microsoft, um, because it was not that easy. It was very difficult. Um, and so, uh, yeah, when, when this stuff starts to pick up, uh, in 99, one of the things we found early on was like, not only did people like the pretty pictures, they were just starting to figure out like, Hey, how do I get my own stuff in there? Like, how does this work? Like, and, um, so the, the, that's where the community came in. Uh, and, you know, in the spring of 99, we started saying, well, what if people could figure out how to get the image, right? Like you didn't take as many photos. Like if you had to get a camera, uh, you didn't, you didn't I, I, as a, someone then I didn't lug around and, you know, a 35 millimeter camera because those are incredibly expensive. You usually went to the drugstore and you bought one of these disposable ones, you know, took a bunch of pictures, hoped that something came out and then you'd end up with like a, you know, an envelope full of them that you'd look at three or four times. Uh, and then you usually end up in a shoebox. Um, but some intrepid people started to sort of like scan these and, and figure this out. And, um, like, okay, well, what if people can upload, you know? Why not? This, it can't be that hard. And so we set about, uh, set about doing this um, in 99. And there was a sort of fateful day that we were going to make this public. And um, we had to make a decision. And this is sort of like one of those things where, you know, I, you've talked to lots of folks like we, we were, you know, kids playing around. Like we weren't coming from business school. We weren't. Uh, management consultants, we weren't thinking about market sizes or any of this sort of stuff. We're like, okay, should we make these images public by default or private by default? Mm. Uh, and we're like, yeah, screw it. Let's make it public. Like, why, why, you're putting it up there. Like, mm. why, like, the whole point is to share it, right? Like, why, why, why make it private? And that kind of sort of like decision uh, was really pretty pivotal because not long after we're doing this, you're starting to see the first crop of um, uh, photo finishing services start to come up, which is, again, much more out of this very refined thinking like, okay, here's an old world behavior people need to make prints. Um, and this is how, this is how we're going to, this is how we're going to do it. You can get your digital images. You're going to send them off, get the prints made, get them sent to you. Um, and that was an inherently private thing, right? Like, you didn't, you didn't, like, it was creepy enough just to think that the guy behind the counter at, at the development shop might see what, what you had handed in in your camera. But, like, so you weren't going to, no one else was going to see those theoretically except the guy running the printing press. Uh, but our thinking was totally different. I was like, okay, we're going to make these public and we're going to see what that means, right? Um, and what it meant was like the beginning of the never ending. Like once you get into like that, we were the ones who sort of like figured out once you get into photo sharing, it pretty much just keeps getting bigger. And that means like each day more photos uploaded, each day more different things uploaded, and uh, and uh, a bunch of things come out of that. The first one was uh, something we were not prepared for, which is. Uh, adult content, right? Like we had no, we're like, whoa, wait a second. Okay. That's a problem. So was it a, was it a large days, percentage? Uh, no, but you don't need a large percentage right. to have a problem. <laughs> right. 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 
And uh, we were, um, we immediately made the decision that that wasn't, that that wasn't going to work for us. Like it wasn't going to be an unfettered thing. And so uh, three of us are set about taking turns screening and um, uh, it doesn't take long for you to be disturbed or burnt out um, by screening um, kind of any random content coming in for realizing we had to actually kind of build some sort of system around like actually hiring um, uh, or building a service to make this smarter and smarter. So that, that the first thing we learned was that like to be in this business, you actually have to assume a, a bigger like cost um, in, in, in actually screening the content. Um, and then the second one was like, you're sort of setting out this path for infrastructure development. Right, because you're you're going to keep growing. You're going to need more and more resources. Yeah, Im- image uh, files are way bigger than text files. Yeah. Yeah, and, and um, again, this is another one where, like, sort of necessity, kind of our, our our situation put us in a different place than like things that were happening up in the Bay Area, which is we were Linux based. We were running, you know, when we had to pick our first database, it's like, we're going to do this MySQL thing. So these costs that, you know, you've heard others talk about, like, setting up, they were real costs. You wanted to get into the web and serve at scale. You had to spend millions of dollars. And we were, you know, a little bootstrap thing in San Diego. We didn't know. We didn't, we couldn't have, we couldn't have told you the name of a venture capital company or you had never, you had never had a meeting with any venture capitalists at this point. No, I had absolutely no idea about anything, um, and that <laughs> that uh, you know made for some for some comical sort of like acquisition stuff that maybe we're talking about in a bit. But but basically, we were so we were now building we we're building things uh, in this new kind of lamp stack, Linux, Apache. Uh, we were Perl, right, in the sort of mid to late 90s, PHP just started to emerge. So our first iteration was in Perl, and, you know, everything is custom. And, and um, Perl, and, was, Perl you know, was my we first like language pushed, that I learned. Right, and so you had to, you know, like, we're, it was like sort of like mod CGI and fast mm-hmm. CGI. Mm-hmm. We went with fast CGI, which meant that, you know, Andy would be on, like, email with the guy who created it and wherever he lived because we were, very quickly became the, you know, as before you know it, we were like going from a million page views a month to a million page views a day and like, uh, you know, sort of like pushing the, um, the limits of this stuff. And, and this was around this emerging sort of ecosystem of sharing this visual content. And so the community kind of came out of that. This was where you could have, uh, you know, your own page with your photos, out there, uh, you could put them in albums. You could caption them. People could comment on them, um, and uh, you know, it, it at, from that point on, just it it started to grow. Uh, well, you know what? Let, let me interrupt you there because that to me is the most fascinating part of the story. Because if you think about it, um, from the birth of the web in the early '90s, uh, it is kind of about sharing yourself. If you know how to put up a website. And you can blog. Well, they didn't call it blogging back then, but you know, you can you can talk about your life, you can talk about your your interest in Star Trek or whatever. But the ability to share yourself 
and literally images of your it, it's limited to text it's you wouldn't have been able to share pictures of yourself necessarily very easily before so just by being at this inflection point in history where it's suddenly becoming easier to put digital files online was it was there an immediate uptake where people like yeah i i want to do this or or were people hesitant like i i'm just curious was there like a sort of like that privacy divide where people are like why would i share my photos of myself or my kids online at, at the very dawn of it happening we had a private option so it wasn't, it wasn't like it was impossible on websites you'd have to trip the flag um no that was what that was what became this sort of like uh odd kind of um three or four year crusade that I was I became largely responsible for, which was like making people understand the new behavior because there were, there were, there, there, there were people engaging in the behavior, but people talking about it and analyzing it couldn't wrap their heads around it. Right. They didn't fully understand why that would be public. Like as soon as sort of, Oh, photo comes out or uh snapfish, these things like, Oh, those make sense. Right. Like I need to make prints. Like that's, that's the business. And we're all like, why? Like, you just got these things into a, a, you know, they're digital now. You can do anything you want with them. Like they can be your screensaver, they can be your wallpaper, they can go to your mom, they can go anywhere. Right. You, you just you put know, it up and give someone the, the, the URL and, and they can see it. Right. Yeah. And so we, we were sort of like, kind of like, uh, confused by the modeling, particularly with analysts and people who are sort of looking at these things as, as business. And um, our thing, our thinking was like, no, like uh, it, it's starting in 99. Like we're going for, we're, I guess we're going for audience. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I, I think there was a little bit, to answer your question, there was a little bit of a split, like people who got it, got it. Sure. It was, it was not particularly difficult. And um it was kind of fun and you got some feedback. Um, and then there are others that were like, well, that's like, you know, what you perhaps more concerned with like the privacy aspect, but it was never a, it was never a right that we got on the website. Um, because we, we did have like, if you were really concerned about privacy, you could actually just, you know, make it private. But what you're saying is, is that there was a certain segment that, you just flipped the switch and they were like, yeah, this is a great idea. I'll just throw all my photos up here. And so there was a certain segment and that segment grew and grew. And from the moment you flipped the switch, it was immediate that, that there were people that wanted to do this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, immediate and, and not a segment. I mean, a very broad segment. Um, like just, we couldn't believe we didn't know what was going to come up. And that was part of like what was amazing about the community was just like, you know, every category. We'd start creating an ontology, and people would fill the ontology. Um, and so that that was really what was sort of like it, you started to get this feeling of limitlessness, um, coupled with a fear of that limitlessness because it becomes unwieldy, right? Like we could tell you how many kind of uh, licensed images we had, we could. We could wrap our heads around it. We could quantify it. But this, this was different, right? Like it's a thousand images today. It's two thousand. It's four thousand. It's ten thousand. And there are all these categories, and like some of them being filtered off uh, for porn, and you know, you start getting into love. This sort of like uh, you know, the censorship 
questions of like, well, what, you know, is this okay? Because people can come up with some really, you know, you're, you're constantly sort of evaluating that. And, uh, and it just becomes like a, a bit of an intellectual exercise, a bit of a sort of like, where's your line with, you know, and then it was like we hadn't graduated to where people are now about sort of like um, much broader stuff. We were trying to build a brand that we wanted we wanted you to be able to sit down with your kids and look at photos of animals and stuff like that and not worry about um, about seeing something that, that somebody might find offensive. Well, let's, let's turn back to the business side of this then um, because so this, uh, this web shots community sort of takes off in 99 and obviously 99 is, is the height of height of the mania of the dot-com era. Um, and so you haven't, raise any VC money, um, what comes first? Do you start to consider VC or do potential suitors that want to buy you start knocking on your door? Uh, no, we had no, we had no, I honestly had, we had no inclination of even what venture meant. I, I, did, and I, I was more versed than Andy or Nick. Uh, and I did, had no clue. Zero. Didn't, didn't know. I had read microsurf. Do you remember that book? Right. Copeland? The, the Copeland uh-huh. book. Yeah. Yeah, anyone who hasn't read that should read that. It's a, I mean, that's a great sort of like time capsule. But uh, no, I, I, knew, I knew nothing at all. We had a friend who was an attorney at uh, for somebody up in Seattle, and someone, somehow we got connected with Getty Images, um, uh, which was sort of like this budding um, kind of professional content side of things. And in '99, people were really exploring lots of different. People are trying to sell art online. There's like, you know, images were to become, as we've seen today, they're sort of like one of the pillars, the lifeblood of, of, of an online experience. And so we got called by getting, we actually, we, we went up to fly up to pitch them. And so we, uh, Andy and I sat in a conference room with a head of, which I, I, I maybe corp dev, um, uh, this guy, I think his name was John Gonzalez. Super nice guy. We gave a pitch hour long and at that point we were, we were I don't think we had ever made a deck we were just sort of like showing what was going on with the growth and this sort of like big bold prediction that like you know in four or five years you know like one or one out of five people online is going to be interacting with much and uh, we're compelling sort of enough that we did this whole 45 minute pitch and then the guy leaves the room and comes back and he's like can you, can you do it can you do it again and we're like, do I do what again? He's like, can you give the pitch again? And we're like, uh, okay. And so he comes back in with Mark Getty. And so we then proceeded to just literally go over the exact same pitch that we had just sort of like poured our, you know, hearts out into to Mark Getty and had a vibrant discussion. And then we flew back to San Diego. And then at the next step, um, they wanted to see our financials. And, um, uh, you know, it's sort of like Andy's, Andy had formed the business and he was uncomfortable. We, we just had no idea what that signals or meant. And we, we were like, we, we were uncomfortable with that. And they were like, well, we'd like to invest in your company, a strategic investment. And we thought about that for 10 minutes. We're like, well, that doesn't make sense. If, if, if they invest in, but then other people won't want to, you know, like what if some other company is interested in their competitor? And so, 
that's sort of like dead-ended of our own doing. Uh, and two weeks later, we get this email from somebody excited, uh, excited home, right? They had merged by 99 saying, hey, what's, uh, you know, we, we're interested in what you're doing. And we're like, oh, cool. Can we come down to see you? And we're like, okay, great. And, uh, you know, this is 99. Um, Excite is a big brand for us, like being online. It was like Excite. Uh, they had just come out with this thing called The Assistant, and they were doing some cool stuff. And we were wildly paranoid that somebody was going to figure out that, like, this is working. Like, this is, like, we, we, we're, you know, our website is, is really doing well, and it's sort of coupled with this desktop client. And, um, you know, we're sort of, like, changing. We're, like, releasing stuff like multiple times a day. And uh, so, so a couple guys come down from Excite and start talking to us. And I've sort of pieced together later that uh, Graham Spencer had seen us climbing the download.com charts. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, somebody, should, somebody from Excite should go check these guys out. So they come down to our office in Ocean Beach, which I'll try to paint a picture of. Like imagine a kind of a two-floor, what looks like a, relatively low budget apartment complex, but it was actually its own commercial. And as we had sort of expanded, we had kind of moved from one unit to another. So if you came into our first office, the actual office door, you would go through a door that would lead to like an identical, you know, like 400 square foot space that would then lead through an identical uh, door into another one. They're sort of like daisy chain together. We're just in the same rooms and, we sit around this conference table sort of telling them what we were doing and, and stuff like that. And they were very, they were like, great, great. And, um, uh, they, they left and they're like, huh, oh, okay. And so, uh, a couple of days later, uh, they're like, well, you know, we'd like you to come up to Redwood city. We want to talk some more. So they're like, uh, okay, sure. You know, like we honestly, we had read some stuff. I think we had read the, there was a great article at some point about the hotmail issue. Right. And wired. Put these guys in a room and like, you know, like as we were, we're not totally clued out, but we were definitely not savvy, Uh, not savvy to the point that we should. So Andy and I were responsible for this, this trip and we show up at, at, um, at San Diego airport. Um, and we're both wearing identical shirts. We didn't wear, it's so San Diego, okay? We, every single day we went to work in a, in a similar outfit, which involved shorts and a t-shirt and sandals. Like, there was no point. There was no, there was, there was no one to impress. There was nothing going on. Like, that's just, that's, that was the work happened. So now we had to go up to, to the Bay Area and, like, got to get some, like, hacky pants, I guess. And so we have identical shirts on. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what? We can't go in there dressed like this. So we, we're at the airport, so we get on the airport, we fly up to SFO, we rent a car, and, um, you know, there's no Google Maps, we're, like, trying to figure out where we're going, Excited was off-Broadway, but I think there's also a Broadway in, in San Carlos, yeah, San Mateo, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and so we got the wrong exit, and then we're, like, you know, like, looking at our watches, there's no smartphone, there's no, like, this is, like, you got to get to a physical place at a physical time and, you know, look presentable and, and talk to people. And so we found like a, a strip mall with some sort of department store and we kind of Rochambeaued and Andy had to go in and buy a shirt, change his shirt. So we took the shirt, the shirt issue. And then we showed up and, um, 
excuse me. So we're, we show up at, at the site campus, which is sort of like a, a five, maybe five fifty, five fifty five Broadway. And it's like, we're like, Oh my God, like it's these big kind of warehouse buildings. And they had, they had gone through this merger with excite with at home, which was, uh, amusing for lots of reasons. Most notably, the companies were physically situated next to one another. Um, so their campus, they just jointly, they physically joined uh, in addition to sort of like the corporate joining. And they, the at-home buildings were these sort of big, beautiful white buildings that, that are um, now part of the Stanford Medical Research thing that's right on 101. And we're just sort of looking at this and like we walk into this building and it's it is, it is 1999. Like it has every hallmark of everything you could possibly imagine. Big slide going down the middle, like happy people, uh, foosball tables and ping pong tables. And like, a you know, like a data, I think it was like a data, the old data racks were like hidden behind glass as sort of like almost like a display. They weren't actually used. Like it, it was, it was, it was it. This is like, this is, this is, wow. You know, this is like the stuff we're reading about in magazines. And um, we went through a series of meetings with Joe Krause and, uh, and others. And, uh, you know, they were sort of clear that they wanted to, um, to buy us. And um, what began, you know, they sort of began this sort of dance of like, um, awkward negotiations that again we were sort of ill-equipped uh to handle um do you have any advisors enough to i mean just like we didn't like we've never done a deal we didn't know right we didn't we're like five guys in a in an office building and or you know like a in san diego and our only comp was winamp right the winamp Hmm. sold for 200 million to which just the other day i listened to your podcast i found out that a lot of that was some sort of stub against uh you know, their legal issues. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any legal issues. We didn't, we didn't, you know, we were making a little bit of money. Maybe, maybe we we're going to make 500 grand that year or something like that. But, um, we're growing very fast and we had page views and everything then was about page views, but they could conveniently build a model, um, that, that, you know, worked into the tens of millions of dollars. So we came to this agreement on, I'm probably getting some of this wrong, but it, it was roughly about 50 million bucks. And um, some of that would be in uh, uh, tied up over a couple of years, and some of it um, would be available to sell after an initial lockup because they're a public company. Was there any cash, or was it all stock? It was all stock. It's just like when was the stock going to be sellable? Now, uh, you know, obviously, like we're elated, right? Like fifty million dollars. Like, are you kidding me? And so then you go back, and then you start. Then you start talking to an accountant, and then you start to <laughs> things start to start to go sideways a little bit. Like mm-hmm. the first issue you have is uh, when you do that sale like that, you, the first person who lines up uh, is the IRS, right? They need to be paid immediately. And so if you sell a company for a lot of money, you need the first thing you actually have is, is a tax bill, and um, and if the stock is locked up, you have no money to pay this tax bill. Right. So. Uh, it creates it creates a whole it starts opening up all the sorts of like issues that like you've got to start to figure out. Um, yeah, so we we kind of came to terms on this deal. We're elated, like you got to be quiet about it. Can't tell you know like can't entertain it. Their offers they have a no shop, and this is in 
Oh gosh, uh, maybe September of of '99. Um, but you know, it was we, we had we had we had a hundred percent confidence in this deal going through. Mm-hmm. Now we didn't have any kind of bond that wasn't wasn't going to. So maybe we were naive, and so we're kind of like happy and diligent working. And every week, weeks would start to go by, and every week they would fax us a. Uh, extension to the no shop agreement, which means we couldn't talk to people. So if somebody called you up and was like, Hey, we want to talk. Uh, you have to say, we can't talk. Sort of like code. And, um, the week started to go by and we we're kind of getting frustrated. We had gotten this humongous reverse triangular merger document. And we now had our, our attorneys going through it. And it's like, you know, 200 pages long and kind of going through these various questions, but it's kind of moving along. And at a certain point, four, five, six weeks started to drag. We had no idea of knowing that they were, you know, Excited Home was a big company. They got they, at the same time they were doing the Blue Mountain Arts deal, which is, which my understanding was its own sort right. of like eight hundred million ball of, <laughs> so, of crates, right? Like it's yeah. a bunch of artists in Colorado, and like, um, and so they weren't they weren't really deliberately dragging their feet, um, but they also had some issues with they had to sign this agreement with this other company called world prince uh, that was like basically a web shots ripoff and um they were working through some stuff a- anyway the one week that they didn't fax us to no shop through some colossal oversight out of the blue we got a call from mp3.com and they were also in san diego and i don't know how they found out of us, but they randomly called and um, this was sort of like the, the, those those years were kind of crazy. People would do these acquisitions just to get like a stock pop, which would then in turn justify the acquisition mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and MP3 got music and photos, they go together uh, we want to buy you guys. And um we were suddenly like, whoa, like this, it's sort of like overloaded our brains. Cause like we, we had gone through this whole cycle. We were all, all excited. Now suddenly somebody starts calling you and in the span of 24 hours, like it's, I think, uh, Michael Robertson, like the people started calling. They're like, we'll give you $50 million cash. I'm like, no, we're good. And I'm like 60, 70, 80, we'll give you a hundred million dollars cash, $10 million if it doesn't go through. Huh. And at this point, we're like, oh, my God, like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, now we can stay in San Diego because huh. their offices were, like, you know, five miles away or ten miles away. It's going to be all cash. We don't have to deal with this horrible tax thing that we're worried about. And uh, it kind of created all this angst and then this guilt, right? Like, this all happens in 24 hours. Now it's like cheating on somebody. uh it, through no fault of you, like you know, like they were literally shouting numbers into the phone, like you're trying to like get off the phone, and they're shouting numbers. And so, so Annie had to get on the phone and call, um, call. I forget. I'm not sure he called him excited home and and be like, we got, we have an issue, and um, that triggered sort of like this fascinating 18 hours where they're like. Do not talk to anyone. And like Joe and I think Eric Jorgensen just drove. They literally got in their cars 
and drove to SFO, dropped them on the curb, got on the, they walked in, got on the next flight to San Diego, flew in, and stayed in the room with us until all the documents were signed at like one in the morning. And um, as part of that, they had to like go to the board. And what we did was we got into a room and we we just picked out a bunch of numbers and said, what what do we want? What's the right number? And how much can we have, like, can we sell it immediately? And then we took our numbers and we averaged them and uh, and we gave that to them and they agreed to it. And so it ended up being maybe $82, $83 million and uh, two-thirds sellable initially. So it was insane. It was an insane thing. We had no venture. We, we, it, was, it was an amazing, amazing deal with complete chaos at the end and... Um, you know, lawyers waited at night in a room until we kind of walked around the table and signed, signed all these things. And then, uh, and then suddenly we're now part of a big company. So yeah. And an interesting context is like, what, what's the time period? Is it a matter of weeks from when excite first contacts you? Is it a month, two months? And then all of a sudden the, the, the buyout takes place. Like that must've been an insane, crazy period time, especially because you, you didn't have this business background. Um, you know, I think that whole thing dragged into three months. And, um, you know, it, it, these things always take a forcing function that, like, usually something, for some reason, it's like something comes to a head. And in our case, it was this sort of uh, MP3 thing. I forgot one actual detail that was fascinating because it's sort of like, Again, we don't have the blogs. There's none of this Twitter. None of this kind of uh, currency of, of gossip and mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and stuff. But at a certain point, uh, I think Michael Robertson was having breakfast with maybe someone from Dell, and someone overheard. This is in the period where there were MP3. This is a very telephone period. Thought that they were actually going to buy it because we were talking to them for that 24 or 48 hours, and some reporter in San Diego got wind of this. And the next day there's an article in the business section of, uh, they called us up and they're like, can you confirm this? And, uh, Andy's sister was like, kind of reacted <laughs> spontaneously. Oh no, oh no, oh no. And she's quoted in the newspaper as saying like, when comment, <laughs> when after comment, that they're sort of like, oh no, oh no, oh no. And this is, <laughs> this is sort of like in the, you know, that's fantastic. one section of, of the Union Tribune, we're like, oh my God, did they read this newspaper up in Silicon Valley? Like, they're going to know. We haven't told them yet. So, like, that came out in the paper, and we're like, okay, we have to call them. Like, um, but the whole thing did to actually drag out over at least, at least uh, two months. And then after signing, there was like a little bit of a period to when to close and they got to calculate the trailing stock price, all the sort, of, all the sort of stuff. But um, it took, yeah, it took, it, 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 it took a while. Well, but it's, so it, it does eventually close and it's around 82, 83 million. Um, now I know that this is sort of yada yada a couple of years here, but, um, excite at home is actually one of the really early casualties of the bust. Like they, they declare bankruptcy at the end of 2001, I think. And so yep. I'm, I'm wondering, <laughs> Not not to ask this sort of you know rude question of did you get out okay with some money but like um, were you able to sell some of those sellable shares right away? 
Well, on the advice of my mother, uh, who was full of all sorts of advice, lots of sound advice, um, pay your taxes. And any entrepreneur out there, pay your taxes. Don't screw around with that stuff. So we, as soon as we could sell, I sold to pay taxes and then um, did a lot of dollar-cost averaging, just basically selling a little bit each month. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it does mean that because basically the site went, the, the whole company went bankrupt over the period. Um, there was a lot of stuff at the end that um, that was not worth nearly what we had signed for. Now, uh, there was stuff early on. Actually, the, the, the stock actually bumped above what our client price was for the first few months. So there's a little bit. Um, my partner, Nick, did not make a smart decision in, uh, in this. He... There were some of our shares that if you held long enough, you could get long-term capital gains. So he wanted to hold for a year. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, had a degree of bitterness about that. So it wasn't, you know, that's all sort of after the fact. That ends up becoming sort of like money management. Um, right. But, right. you know, they're like Mark Cuban did smart things with collaring. These things were volatile, you know, like we were in. But you couldn't tell. Like any given day, you know. Things were going higher, and then they suddenly they go down, and then there's sort of this began it in early 2000s, sort of like slow march to zero. Could you comment for me a little bit about Excited Home? Because I think I've said on the podcast before, like that was a huge company at the time um, that has kind of gone down the memory hole. So, like, I don't know how long you were under the Excite umbrella, just a couple years, but just maybe comment a little bit on the culture of that company or, or your experiences there. Oh, boy. Um, it was, I mean, you know, in hindsight, it was amazing. So I'll give you the, I'll give you the good, the bad, the ugly, the whole nine years. Um, the Arcanary, and when we chose, we chose not to listen to this canary, but uh, we, they didn't move us up for six months. And so they had their first earnings call where they owned us in Blue Mountain in probably January of 2000. And on that earnings call, which we dialed into, um, like a quick line item was them missing their earnings. And there was a line that was like, due to a failure to monetize web shots and Blue Mountain Arts. And we're like listening to like going, what? Like, mm. we've done everything anyone's asked us to, to do. Like, what, 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 sorry, what did we do wrong? Um, and so, you know, that, that we, we kind of just, we, we thought it was funny at the time. It probably was more cause for concern than funny. Um, but we didn't take too much note of it, um, mostly because we were growing every day. So they moved us up in uh, two, uh, probably May, and it was frenzy. I mean, the real estate market was crazy. Um, you know, we had never seen anything like it, the billboards. I mean, people were recruiting so aggressively, like, you know, a mobile Yahoo builder of billboard would show up in the site parking lot. And like people were trying to poach employees. And like, it, it just was like this totally, you know, completely different world from where we were coming. And so part of that was uh, exciting, right? Like we had this amazing cafeteria. We had a, place to work out and there was places you could get massage. Not everything was free. Like things are way more free now. It's sort of like what we saw at Excite got kind of recreated at Google because lots of smart mm-hmm. folks from, from Excite at home went over to Google and just sort of like created 
that vision, uh, you know, the Friday the Fourth. Like, there's a lot of uh, cultural stuff that that really was prototyped at Excited Home, and then kind of found its way into Google, and then sort of expanded out from there. Um, you know, free beers on Fridays, and like sodas were all 25 cents, and uh, you know, was, the offices were nice, and everyone was having important meetings, and like, <laughs> you know, it was it was it was the bubble. And um, uh, it was fun. Lots of people, um, lots of energy. Um, I was living down in Palo Alto, so my commute was completely fine. I think, uh, you know, if you were to, like, imagine yourself on 101 then, like, it was bumper to bumper going back to SF. And, uh, you know, just sort of pre-cell phone driving all the album, probably 80% of those people would have a StarTac or some sort of phone kind of, like, pegged to their ear, like talking on the phone to pass the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, a, I was sort of like, uh, doe wide optimist. Like I thought that, you know, this was going to be a great company and, uh, web shots were working hard. We we're, like I said, we we're growing every day. Um, at the time it was at the end, web shots was doing more page volume than Excite was. So that was sort of like an, a good indicator of like how fast the how continued to grow. Really? By, then, by, by like what year would that have been? Uh, this is in 2001. Wow. I mean, it, it was that fast. But, you know, I think the real problem started in earnest. George Bell was sort of like one foot in, one foot out um, because he was living on the, the East Coast um, and you know, there was a sort of like at a certain point there was some McKinsey study that was everyone was talking about it. They were going to figure out what the solution was for Excited Home. And, um, you know, none of those things. Like the cold hard fact was they were getting squeezed by by all the sort of cable, all the communications folks who were who had sort of like come together to build um, to build that company. And I think the optimists had thought that they would never let the company go down. It turns out that the more cynical, uh, um, cynical behavior ended up winning the day, um, which is that they basically pilfered all the work that, that uh, at home had done and then recreated them for their own networks. And, right. And, if, uh, if you haven't listened to the Avram Miller episode from a couple of weeks ago, he has a lot to say about that actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I missed that. I mean, you know, it was, it, uh, you know, Excited Home actually paid to have have AT and T kind of Xerox their network um, effectively. Uh, that said, you know there was some. I can one of there was all sorts of memories from then. I can remember like flying Elvises coming down, parachuting into like one of the big quarterly parties. Like uh, I can remember awkward things like the day they let go the entire sales force, which was like you know. A lot of fun, like kind of lifeblood, like 300, 400 folks, a clear signal that like the company, would, if you're letting go of the sales company, the sales force, like what does that mean for a media company? Um, day there had been already a pre, you know, ordained ice cream social outside. And so like you got this awkward kind of cheerleading going on when clearly it's like, oh my God, every, you know, like half the company's just been let go and we're having mm-hmm. ice cream outside. So there was sort of like degrees of angst. Uh, our little group grew to about 12 or 13. A lot of them got really good at ping pong. I mean, like really good. Um, 
but you know we're shipping product and we're growing our kind of technology was um, being introduced into the broader network, right? Like we had to sort of discover that there's a way that didn't involve Sun Solaris in these expensive ways and um, uh, we could feel sort of like bottoms up things starting to, to take hold, um, albeit too late to sort of like cut costs and things like that. Um, but we were in a didn't we, by some fluke, we didn't integrate with the Excited Home uh, ID mm-hmm. and we stayed independent, which is like, again, something accidental that, that really helped us in our sort of second iteration. And, uh, you know, so it was fun. I'd say 2000 was fun to be there. 2001 became a little more, had, had more angst associated with it, um, rolling layoffs. Uh, you know, eventual bankruptcy, 9-11 happens, like, uh, the fall was, the, the fall was, um, you know, really kind of mixed, uh, mixed, mixed feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and at a certain point, like we're sitting there going, wait a second, if this company goes under, what happens to us? Like, it's sort of like the obvious question, like, right. wait a second, what happened? Wait, wait. Um, and so at that point, we're like, well, they can't just turn us off, can they? And I'm like, well, we don't, like, guess they could. And so um, we decided that Sir Prude offered was, like, they can't just, like, it's too well. So we uh, decided we needed to put in some sort of a, like, we'll give you a million dollars, just don't turn it off type of thing. Like, had some sort of, like, thing to get somebody's attention, uh, you know, higher up in the company. Is that and is so that a complicated that. process though? Because like, if in a bankruptcy, like there's all sorts of creditors and things like that. So, uh, what we're le- leading to is that you guys eventually uh, buy Webshots from Excited Home. But like, was that a complicated thing to do to rescue it from from under the bankruptcy? Yeah, um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was a little complicated. I mean, so before they declare bankruptcy, they decided they were going to maybe try to sell some assets. So we were one of them. Now, it's a tough deal because the only uh, suitor who was interested substantially was AOL. And um, so you can imagine people from AOL coming to talk to us. <laughs> and we're the, we're the other people who are interested, right? We would sort of like indicated mm-hmm. the term mm-hmm. all night. And so we're in this, you know, kind of, Odd situation, being like, well, yeah, this is what we're doing, but you know, if you buy us, we're probably just going to leave. So, so like, what are they buying? So they were sort of like, there was, we were in uh, a very powerful position. Um, I will give AOL credit uh, for this, whatever group it was. Um, in the process of building out community, we had stumbled upon something else at roughly the same time as uh, Live Journal, which is kind of the first. Um, blogging blogging site which is we had discovered the asymmetric follow the thing that that now twitter and instagram like the, all the big social sites are on which is that you can follow someone and you don't have to follow back and uh it just means that you're getting updates and content from that and we had built our community around this notion of, of following uh favorite members and notifying people when these people posted new images like it's it it it, it just seemed like a seemed like a good thing to do right mm-hmm. we want to people to, to discover stuff. And AOL was fascinated with this 
what they were calling this network of people. And we're like, huh, yeah, we're, we're kind of like, well, yeah, no, it's, it's nice. Like we were, this is pretty French survey. This is sort of like um, the dawning of this idea that, that people were actually connected and all these are pseudonyms, right? They would, would, it took Facebook to really get people comfortable putting their real names. Like no one put their real names at the, anything um, by and large. But you're saying you're, um, you're, you're giving credit for the AOL people for recognizing that. That's yeah, a yeah. Yeah. That's starting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very yeah. interesting. Cause we did, we hadn't recognized, I mean, we, we had implemented it. I, I don't think we like, we weren't like, you know, we need to dig deeper on this. It, you know, it works. I think we're just sort of like following whatever fortunate, intuitive, um, and I've had companies that have done well and done poorly. And, you know, sometimes you get on a good intuitive streak and sometimes don't. Um, but we were, we were making a series of good decisions and well, kind of amounted to a good thing. So we sat in, now here's the, here's the part that gets very interesting, which is we sat in a room once this became kind of like something that was going to become viable. And we were like, should we, if we do this, do we, which side of the business do we want? Because uh, at this point, we're like, no one is investing or doubling down in community, right? Like community, which, are you watching Halt and Catch Fire, the TV show on AMC? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like sort of like they're kind of chronicling the, the sort of like birth of these people connecting online, which right. is fascinating. And, you know, Usenet and all these things in the 90s did a lot of that. But when it came out onto the web and all these, uh, you know, Yahoo, these portals started to build these communities. They were great. They had in crazy engagement. They also had no ability to make any money off them whatsoever. So right. they became a very, just not like that. You're like, you're not selling community. And here we are like <laughs> with one of our main tabs called community mm. and uh, lots of activity and lots of costs. And so we kind of had a hard discussion, like, and we just cut, you know, maybe we just shut the community down. We focus on, this bread and butter, we know we can like, it's much bigger than it was. We can charge um, for some things. We started to get the sort of birth of this premium idea. Um, because we were like, this is going to be an awesome lifestyle business. What do you want? You want eight weeks vacation? I want 10. I'm going to work four hours a day. Like you this fantasy of this you know, sort of like company that was going to be, you know, perfect. Um, well, uh, we decided now we got to hold on to community. It's like the whole enchilada. We got to, we got to see where this goes and the sort of like ideas around like having some sort of like part-time job never materialized because we had no idea. We're actually just starting to grow at that point as a sort of like media property. So anyway, so we, we, we go, go through those machinations and then uh, eventually the, the folks that excited them were like, well, the buyers, like if you really want this, it's yours and sort of like at that exact same time the actual bankruptcy is going down so now instead of doing it with the corporation now it's going to be out of the bankruptcy court and uh, uh, we then had to go through that process which was which was fascinating we had an attorney who was just a badass like there's guys that specialize in this we have this guy that I it's almost like a dream. This guy was impeccably dressed, like knew every answer to every question and exuded confidence and uh, kind of shepherded through it. I can't for the life of me remember his name, but he was extraordinary. Like I honestly, like he was like, he was superhero lawyer. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't back away from bashing lawyers either, but this guy was, this guy was phenomenal. Uh, the 
only amusing thing out of the bankruptcy court is you had to go to a courtroom and the judge called it on order. And you have never, can never imagine that much sort of idling mm. hourly money going on because there were so many attorneys in there representing so many creditors that it was astonishing. Like they were just, they would all have to go up to the podium and check themselves in for what company they were representing. Um, so I can remember that vividly. And then I can remember like they're about to stamp our sheet saying we've got it all. And we had an objection. This woman kind of goes up to the point and is like, I'm from Microsoft and we have checked. It's like, what? Like everything was like clear. And so this is what's interesting is Microsoft actually had attorneys that would go to any bankruptcy. Hmm. And if any assets were changing hands that included some sort of uh, computers, you can't, you can't transfer a computer with a Microsoft, uh, any type of software on it without it paying Microsoft again. Wait, what? And so they had, yeah. So if you had like Windows 95 or Windows NT or some software license, it doesn't, it doesn't give you the right to just sell the machine and license you have, you're technically supposed to pay Microsoft again. And so, um, so, so they're just sitting there in the dot com bust era in every bankruptcy court. <laughs> they, I would, that would be my guess. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Now, now it turns out we were built on Linux, so the big payday was not there. You know, we had a couple, you know, whatever, we had 10 Windows machines. Like, it wasn't it wasn't a uh, big thing, but it held us up for, either, it held us up for three or four hours, like, working out some side agreement with Microsoft. But um, uh, that was the only wrinkle. And then we got that, and then... Honestly, it was like a movie. We moved out of this sinking ship in the middle of the night. I can remember us rolling our chairs to the elevators down to the sort of like parking structure, monitors on the, the, the our chairs, like using them as dollies, loading up our cars, like taking our big, you know, we didn't have laptops and we had their towers and their desks and their papers and all their, you know, assorted stuff and uh we kind of rolled out of of the excited home offices and and drove down to downtown redwood city which is not quite up and coming at that point um into 1991 broadway um with i don't know 12 folks 14 folks uh and being like okay here we go here's 2.0 which actually became successful yeah, you know, I think I we get into this office and it, it we had just gone from like you know everyone collecting salaries and all sorts of perks of being a big company. It's suddenly like okay, now we're paying people and uh, we're going to get profitable really fast, right? Like we again we we just we spent I think we spent two million dollars to get the, the all the assets back mm-hmm. and. Uh, and so we moved in and we we're like, we got that we had 90 days to turn on as this, uh, what is now a premium service. And, uh, we're going to have different paywalls and, um, we're going to get it done. We're going to like test it. And everyone on that team just, they did amazing work. Like they crushed it. We launched it in 90 days and, uh, we're immediately cash flow positive. Um, we were, we were figuring the ads were plummeting at that point. Um, you know, so we weren't too bullish on ads. We did take our one ad, um, 
a guy that we had, we had pulled over from the uh, Excite side, um, Josh Davidson. He he came to work for us, and we're like, you know, whatever you could bring up is going to be gravy. This one we're going to try to get get stable, and um, and we did. And then from that point, like uh, we had to sort of like keep innovating and 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 keep growing. But as a business, at that point, we were a hundred percent viable. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Right. I think by by 2004, like you're you're a, a top 50, you know, com score property. You're by far the number one photo property maybe on the web. And um, I, I, I read somewhere that you're like, like you're grossing 15 million a year by 2004, I think. Yeah, so I guess it, so we started in 2002, um, sort of on our own, and we are, we did four million bucks of revenue. Um, the only wrinkle being there weren't, there weren't really any SaaS businesses or internet subscription businesses. So when we started turning on all these subscribers, uh, Wells Fargo, um, risk mitigation were just like, what's going on here? It can't be, this is there's something wrong. <laughs> and so they like froze all of our money um, because they just didn't believe it. And it, it took, it took like a full year to eventually get like them to release the funds until they believed that we were actually running a legitimate um, business. So we did, we did 4 million that first year. Uh, we actually did a million dollars in ad revenues and at the end of 02 and 03, things started to arc even more um, because, you know, digital cameras are starting to come out. The college, um, you know, before Facebook, there was web shots uh, and it was public. <laughs> and, you know, most I don't think a lot of college kids even realized that it was public. Maybe they did. But what happened was like every weekend, like all these events would happen on campuses and people had cameras would start uploading them and sharing them. And it sort of like became this um, burgeoning. Uh, uh, user-generated stuff, and and the, the professional side was doing, you know, it's like clockwork doing its own thing. We we're doing kind of more um, deals uh, to get more content on that side, but it was sort of like this strange hybrid world of um, photo sharing. Our e-card site, because people sent these photos around, we were at that point where it became like the number two or number three e-card site, and for you know, e-cards were actually a really big deal. Um, you know, sort of late 90s, early um, 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so we did $4 million the first year and then $8 million, 7 or $8 million in 2003. You know, like uh, we're, we're probably now starting to push 25 employees, uh, growing very fast. Um, yeah, but not, not like light, sort of like in size above the other photo finishing sides, like orders of magnitude bigger. And mm-hmm. then by 2004, 
uh, you know, we're trying to do 25 million uniques a month, which in 2004, the universe was much smaller. And mm-hmm. if you pull ad networks out, like in the U.S., there just wasn't, there was maybe one private company ahead of us, Weather Channel, but everyone else ahead of us was like Yahoo and Google and Microsoft. And, and um, you know, we weren't in the press. We weren't, we weren't like, we, again, we're now starting to occasionally get, uh, like if somebody from venture would want to have lunch and I'd go kind of chat with them. Um, but we always just had a great little company. Like it was great folks. We moved out of Broadway down to Twin Dolphin Drive, which is near where Oracle is. And, uh, we, um, kind of just do what we were doing. You know, I'd say we weren't, it's hard to, uh, at the point, see what the next wave that was coming. You know, we had kind of broken into this, social world and it was hard for us to see there were two waves coming that we didn't quite see one was um one was blogging um and it sort of like in conjunction with that what photo blogging would become which is sort of like less about putting up a bunch of images but like putting up one um and building newer newer tools around discussion which um, Mm. is where Flickr would come and then even beyond that, like it's hard to see mobile. It just we, you know, we wanted that to become something that was so cumbersome, so difficult. Like we had some really deals with Motorola, and, but it has like a dongle for the camera. Like it just was very, it was very cumbersome. Um, well, let me again. I'm sorry to interrupt again, but but that's no, that's such an, an inflection point, and you know, one that I I remember extremely clearly, like 2004, 2005, being the time period when. Web 2.0, as it would be known, is really starting and like, okay, this this web internet thing's not a fad. And but that's also because it is this idea of social becoming the fuel that that proves that there's there there is a second generation to this technology. There's a second use to it. And it is the, the idea that you'd already been hit upon, which is people expressing themselves publicly and people connecting publicly. So like things like Flickr sort of got more press at the time than you guys did. Like, was there, uh, well, so, uh to, to give you the exact chronology, mm-hmm. uh, early in 2004, we, uh, we're not looking for it. A couple things happened. One of this, uh, very, uh, bright eyed venture capitalist named Roloff Boychuk came to our door and was like very keenly interested. He's at Sequoia. Um, I think WebShots would have been his first deal, but we didn't do the deal. Uh, he did YouTube first and he's gone on to amazing success. Um, mm-hmm. And so he, he saw this potential for this bigger thing. Um, Amazon showed up at our door and were very keen on what's going on. And that was, um, because they were building out something called uh, A9. And so they're, they're sort of like head scientist, Udi Mamber, who'd been a bunch of been at Yahoo and Amazon and Google. So we went through this uh, very elaborate, uh, I would label forensic diligence with Amazon, and uh, and they tried to haircut us at the end, and we said no. So we walked, uh, which is a very painful thing to do. Um, my uh, now wife, Julie, uh, who was a CFO, COO, and kind of 
she took Andy's place. Andy, at a, a certain point early on, decided that he had tired of photos and he um, wanted a new experience. So he headed out to Jackson with his family. And, and um, Julie, we had met at Excited Home, and she came on. And within about 30 days, Nick and I realized we um, she actually had a business pedigree and, and um, much more operating experience than us. And so she sort of filled that role as a third partner. So she was the one who um, was bravely told Amazon to take a hike. And um, then we ended up, we, we had more discussions with both Google, who was not public at the time, uh, uh, and a little bit with Yahoo and uh, CNET. And uh, we liked the CNET guys a lot. We came in and we got a deal done. Um, and uh, went through diligence. I think on our part, we were a little fried. We were had been growing so much, and the company was getting to about 40 employees. I think we were tracking on 15 million. We'd gone through the Amazon thing, and we were just, we were not ready to double down with Sequoia. Um, and uh, it was a great offer. They were offering us I don't know, 72 million in cash for CNET. I think they were, they offered us 80 and then they came back with some numbers and we're like, they want to come back with 40 stocks, 40 cash. And we said, mm-hmm. you know, we'll just take 72 in cash. And they're like, okay, done. You know, so, <laughs> so again, you know, we had no venture, uh, unheard of to buy back your company completely unheard of to sell it again. Uh, it was a real measure of achievement to think that the first sale wasn't a fluke. Right, that, that that now at two different time periods, people were coming up with similar values for this company. Now, was it too early? Like, I don't know. You know, I we were enormous, right? Like, mm-hmm. had we had pulled, you know, sort of like savvy, or actually had gone with Sequoia, had we gotten into video? Like, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But um, I think we had played. I think we had played our part for that, and like you said, so this UGC is happening, and. UGC was a mainstream user-generated content was mainstream. We were showing people that it was mainstream. There are 25 million people on there. There are people, there are moms and pops and enthusiasts and people who quilted and people who, you know, took pictures of hummingbirds and kids partying. Like this is all happening, right? Like it was in a sort of a, a contained thing. Um, what happened with 2.0 was, uh, you know, O'Reilly, the, uh, some smart people out here figured out a bunch of trends and came up with a good way to market into that to tell tell a great narrative. And, and, and companies Mike, Mike Arrington as well. Sure, yeah, sure, yeah. And, and they were able to build into this narrative that had to do with APIs and sharing and embedding, and that was a, a hard thing for us to adjust to coming from like a PL driven stuff, right? Like the idea of somebody embedding your content in your site was a, a, to us like a serving cost for the cost, right? Like we weren't, we had already achieved like a m- massive distribution. So we weren't looking to sort of like put content out there. And it's just, it's just, you know, sort of is what it is. It's a new, it, it was a new wave of stuff coming. Now CNET had a book of, site so webshops really made sense and we were going to be able to jump them into a larger audience pool and um, and they tried but like a lot of things were afoot to make that 
um, slightly too late. So Splicker came comes out in oh five, I guess. Same time of roughly Facebook. Like these are sort of like twin two two things mm-hmm. that start to show that there's going to be two new forms of of sharing that are now going to be bigger, right? Yeah, like bo- both were is, both were late two thousand four. Yeah, yeah, and Facebook took a while to get to absolutely um, their seminal invention, like. You know, Facebook is a relentless executor, but really, the outside of getting people to cough up their real names and create a, a giant uh, identity network, um, they were the first ones to tag people inside of photos and to create that thread, um, which is uh, you know a, a kind of a critical invention. And then Flickr just Flickr did a lot. Um, in just focusing on like, what does it mean to upload one photo at a time and build a community around it? They built an amazing community of people who were also in blogging. So they got lots of influence um, around that. And, you know, and then you get better content, better ways of surfacing the content. Those are a a natural expansion of the, of the whole thing. And we did the time at CNET about a year and then, um, Moved on. I will footnote this with because they're on to you know immense challenges. The, the while I was at CNET, um, this little piece of software was popped up. This little new photo thing out of Boston, and I got huddled with uh, Mike Tatum, who was the corporate head of CNET. Like you know, you need to go find these guys and buy them. And so he did an acquisition to buy um, Hapix, which was run by James Park and Eric Friedman who then subsequently took over WebShots, and after they left WebShots at CNET, um, they've gone on to build Fitbit into sort of a monster, you know, mm. kind of first wearable. So um, I feel like I've done, so that's maybe my only corporate uh, based acquisition. <laughs> so, like, I identified some good talent. Um, I don't think, I don't think uh, it's in beginner's luck, I guess. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so so you're right. There's there, there, this thing happening in 04, 05, um, where uh, the, the real diehards um, start to finally find uh, some mainstream audience uh, in the sense that the people who love didn't leave, right? Like in 2001, 2002, there was this crazy exodus of all the folks who wanted to get rich or wanted, you know, were, were, who like enjoyed the lifestyle and the partying and the social scene. And um, from 2002 to 2004, you got this retrenchment with people who loved the web. And you start to see that take hold of South by Southwest, in earnest, people who never gave never gave up and, you know, just kept hacking away and, you know, giving names to things like Ajax and, and CSS starts to come to people who are like, no, we're going to keep making this better. We're going to keep making this find out new ways to do this. Yeah, um, Ajax was huge, yeah. And 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 that starts to sort of like bubble to the top with this, with TechCrunch and GigaOM and, and people um, not talking about tech news, really blogging. Uh, TechCrunch really started as actually just reviewing new products that were coming out and voice to to the measure maps and to uh, YouTube and all these these little products that were coming out that were that were uh, starting out a little and trying to 
trying to do things a little bit better and less clunky than, than they had been. And, uh, and there was a lot of sharing going on, like for, for that, there's a lot of, uh, like community around, um, this new, like the people who were doing these startups because they really loved it. They weren't, there was no exits, right? There, there were not, if you were starting doing a startup in 2003 or 2004, yeah. you, you're, you had a different motivation than someone who was doing one in 96, 97, 98, 99. Like, um, well, and just remember and, uh, like, like the, the shock and awe that like, um, you know, YouTube got taken out at a billion or a billion and a half or whatever it was. Like everyone was like, wait a minute, that can still happen. <laughs> and then, you know, Oh yeah. No, I mean, I, I think WebShots was really the first blip in the kind of five, like a 70 was a meaningful, um, transaction at the point. I think Flickr sold for, uh, like 17, maybe 20 or 40 uh, with, or 40 with some, million or something like that. Yeah. Oh, I think it's Stuart says, I think it's, it's much lower than, than really? people think. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it was still, you know, it was still a meaningful, like it's still Yahoo doing an acquisition. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, it wasn't until YouTube that really then suddenly, or MySpace, I guess that those two were people like, okay, wow, this is, um, there's, there's going to be real, um, the, the game is back on big like lotteries going on again. But, um, you know, a lot of it is just more, uh, just iterating on the platform. I left CNET and, and, uh, we started working on, um, a calendar. I was amused listening to, to Ted Barnett, who's a friend of mine. Um, but mm-hmm. we started trying to, to, to build a new calendar, uh, and that's called 30 boxes. And, uh, it was, I started to get excited about this new, like, kind of passionate community of people developing this stuff. And, uh, Which, and as I remember, as a very important uh, Web 2.0 company as well. So, by the way, um, uh, oh yeah, no, we, we, I think we did some good stuff. I think we have three patents for uh, creative stuff we were doing there. It's still in existence. It's still got uh, it's diehard fans. I still use it every day. Uh, we got tons of press. You know, we're like we got way more press for that. Than we ever did for web shots, even though you know maybe we've had a million registered users or something like that. But we're in time and in business 2.0 and all all sorts of stuff. But um, and with that calendar was uh, it's all all you know RSS is coming out, so there's this big shift in focusing, moving everything to around people, right? Like, and so what I was trying to do with the calendar was figure out a way to build um, activity streams of a news feed into into a calendar UI. But even the idea, there's sort of like two shifts going on there. One, this idea that that person has a bunch of updates associated with them. And then two, that it could be somehow rejiggered into a calendar UI. It didn't work as well in the calendar UI, but uh, that, that stream idea, you know, took hold and then sort of next iteration was friend feed, which was then eventually bought by um, Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Twitter was starting. I uh, uh, bumped into Ev uh, or kind of became fascinated with Twitter right when they came out and wrote this um, blog post about it called Evan Williams of my Tamagotchi. Um, because at that point, Twitter was like this SMS only thing. And if you right. followed someone, you got a buzz in your pocket. And so it was this totally kind of newish experience. And there was dodgeball out there. So I wrote this post that was uh, 
uh, about about that and about dodgeball. And uh, this has been very early. Or this was in September of 2006. And um, out of that, I realized what had been a lifelong dream starting in 1994. I was so in love with Wired. Like I, I sent a applications to come work there, send them essays, <laughs> never with any reply. I got this inbound thing saying that that they liked my article and they wanted to, to excerpt it for the next. They excerpted Paul Portion, which was actually the very first time that the word Twitter appeared in a print publication. <laughs> um, so I felt like it took, you know, it only took 12 years, but I got some, I got an actual something in print uh, and it felt good. Um, but yeah, so, so, you know, at that point, social, social is now going to be a big thing. Like the next big thing. Mm-hmm. Well, as we're, since we're approaching two hours on this, uh, let me, oh, <laughs> let me, let me bring it home with, with two or three more questions, which is let's, let's start first with, um, so you left um, before or after the CNET uh, acquisition, and then they get acquired. Webshots gets acquired by um, is it American Greetings? Yeah, CNET sold it to American Greetings about two years later for forty million dollars. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. and so now are you back <laughs> with with version what three at this point? Right. So uh, now there's a lot of time. There's a lot of interceding time yeah, yeah. Um, in in there, but that's 2007, and um, American Greetings holds it for about five years. Um, American Greetings had bought uh, Blue Mountain Arts a few years before, so I thought there was something very poetic that Webshots these two that companies that had been bought. My excited home yeah. in '99 were suddenly back reunited um, with you know under the same umbrella, but you know I think they were they were brick and, they were like digital with brick and mortar and the, the property just started to it just idled you know the natural state of, of things they're super super nice folks there I had stayed in touch and then I got a call in uh, I want to say 2012 saying that they were. Um, they were thinking about shutting it down. Oh boy, here we go again. Um, so like, you don't don't do that. Like, and so um, we came up with a deal to 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 do this again and to to buy the assets again. And um, and it was a sort of like a different set of things. I like lots of time has passed. Like, I, I was part of another business, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last few years, we've tried to sort of spent a bunch of effort trying to uh, reboot that and reinvent webshots. What does what does webshots mean in 2015? And um, I'm proud to say it is profitable again. Uh, we still have uh, on the order of 25,000 paying customers, um, but we have kind of cut out that community side because that is well served. Mm. Um, all over the internet and we've kind of focused on curating really, you know, sort of like a visual distraction. So we'll, we'll look at feeds from stuff that we still license. We'll look at, we'll try to um, take cool visual content from 
people like the New York Times or Instagram and categorize it and give you sort of a digestible amount of content each day. You know, not very different from where where we were in 1998. Like, what what does it mean to get new stuff each day and give you some things to do? It's nicely integrated across your desktop and on mm-hmm. your phone and your tablet. And um, you know, I think I, I I'd say that it's 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 in a new place now and it's got room to grow and, and, uh, you know, we'll see what, we'll see what the future brings. I'm, I'm uh, realist enough to know that there is yet, and this is part of part of this part of this feeds into motivation. There's really no example of an internet brand. And now web shots is really, a, it's going to be a 20 year internet brand, which is yeah, just amazing. Um, well, how many, how many internet companies are 20 years old? Yeah, no, that's what I mean. It's, it's you know, there's the, there's Yahoo, there's not many. Um, but it's it's this brand that that the, the internet has yet to show a brand that has sort of gone into the decline and then actually been able to turn it around. So I'm not sure it's possible, but you know, webshops could give it give it a, a fair fight. Um, so it's a, it's been a long, strange journey. Well, let me all right. Let me let me end by doing what I always do which is a, a horrible blue sky question that maybe isn't even a question, but it occurs to me that like really one of the killer apps of the internet is, has always been chat or like people just interacting with each other. And, and with every iteration of, of the tech, like it gets rediscovered. That's why things like WhatsApp app and uh, Snapchat and all that stuff. Well, that's like aim. That's like, you know, you know, stuff that people were doing on prodigy and, and AOL at the beginning. And I feel like that photo sharing is sort of the second killer app of what the web and the internet is. And, you know, in a, in a sense, you know, you could say that what Facebook is and what it became was built on photo sharing and things like that. And so I feel like you guys at WebShots were one of the first to discover that sort of, is it is it instinctual, this, this human <laughs> instinct to, I'm going to share these photos? Uh, like, so this is where I'm like, what is my question? But like, um, what do you think about that idea of that this is a, a very basic thing of what makes this technology relevant to people and what creates billion dollar companies and industries and things like that? That, that photos create billion dollar uh, the, the, experiences? The, 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 in, the instinct to share photos with people, just like the instinct to chat with people, like back in the Prodigy and AOL days and the the instinct to chat with people like that WhatsApp and, and Snapchat and everybody is, is rediscovering and things like that. Like the fact, the idea of, you know, I went out to a party last night and I'm going to post on the web, uh, it, what happened. So is it instinctual? I'd say it is. Um, there's a lot of things going on there. Um, yes, I think sharing is instinctual. I think, uh, connecting with people and getting feedback is instinctual. And I think that we discover that the bits that make up these things from the very first days into 93, 94, like rendering some text, rendering some images, that those are, they are, they are this medium. And as you exchange those and interact with them, it's sort of like created lots and lots of that behavior. And that, 
that that kind of it it is the internet, right? Like there, there's a degree to which that is the internet, and so we can make it we can make it smarter, we can make it easier, we can make it faster, we can make changes, we can vary the form, we can vary the features. Um, you know, like I think I think this messaging stuff is just just starting. I think that we're going to have more and more applications are going to actually be interacting with you in a messaging way, you know, maybe these are the first sort of like digital agents or bots that are, that it's all kind of a conversation on dialogue. And so um, I think that things will feel less, they'll be, they're going to become more kind of natural in the way they interact with you. And you're seeing this with Slack and the integrations and stuff like that. Right, but, um, right. You know, it, you can't, I've, been chasing this every day since I was a grad student in 94. And it's just clear that, you know, when people talk about bubbles and this sort of stuff, there's going to be some cycles. But if you look out today at the landscape of, the, of, the, of all of the things that are in the state of flux and the uncertainty around them, like that's what generates like insane changes. That's what generates things like Uber and, and, Airbnb and Instagrams and, and, and Snapchats is there's, there's continuous opportunity. And now there's just so many tools, so much like workforce. There's now even a culture. Think about it, like there's a culture now related to starting things up. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it's the whole thing has been democratized. So like if people aren't bullish on technology and and people solving problems this way, like, I don't know what you can be bullish about because all the pieces are there now. Like, I, I think if anything, it's going to just accelerate it and accelerate. Um, and so that's exciting because that's why, like, I wanted to get into something, like, if I go back to where we started, which was like, I knew I didn't really want to work for someone else. Well, I've been fortunate enough to work mostly with folks and, and uh, sort of like drive our own, um, agenda and occasionally with some stops in some big companies, but I've, you know, we've also been afforded this, this entire medium that is so full of avenues for creativity that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. No, uh, Narendra, I think you said it perfectly when you said that, that, that is the web, that is the, the net, um, you know, the interacting and the interacting around photos was what, what, what you guys discovered. So I, that's why I was so thrilled to talk to you. And I'm, I'm so thrilled that uh, you took the time to uh, remember all this for us. Well, I, it's, it's been an honor just to contribute to the story because that's, that's what everyone's doing every day. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod. And my personal Twitter is at Brian MCC. Thanks for listening.